This is the latest edition of Return to Reason with Leon Fontaine, where knowledge, common sense, and wisdom intersect. With a high value of people and their right to think for themselves, Return to Reason endeavors to present the whole story so that you can make fully informed, wise decisions and bring positive change to your life, community, and to the nation. And now, here's Leon Fontaine. The goal of any public policy should be to improve the lives of citizens. But what happens when public policy actually hurts the very group it claims to protect? How often is the intervention harmful itself? Who has the most to gain from circular policies that never result in solutions? Let's be brave enough to talk about race, gender, sexual orientation, and censorship. It's going to be an eye-opening show today. When public policy hurts people. Over the past few decades, have you noticed how public policy has gone beyond simply collecting taxes, providing services, and maintaining justice, but instead it meddles in the everyday lives of citizens? It regulates down to such a granular level that it impedes fresh, thoughtful solutions to age-old problems. Socially trendy laws have a way of grouping people together and weighing options based on ideological bias, don't they? But does Big Brother government really solve problems? Good public policy should protect people without violating the rights of others. Public policies at all levels of government can go too far. Unfortunately, when truth comes to light, there is little, if any, desire to reevaluate or scrap poor legislation. Laws are seldom repealed, especially if, when brought in, it claimed a moral high ground. Do I want to be protected by the rule of law as a Canadian? Of course. But not at the expense of making my own choices, and not at the risk of losing my parental rights to raise my kids according to my worldview. When bills threaten the life my kids and grandkids can experience, it gets me ramped up to do something. We need to keep our elected officials accountable. Worse than that, we the people sometimes need to educate leaders as to the details of the very laws they voted into existence. More on that later. As always, you certainly do not have to agree with me. I'm sharing facts and also my opinion. What you do with that is totally your choice. After you learn a bit more about the policies that I'll be highlighting, you can make up your own mind about how harmful things like these are and could be for future generations and what you're willing to do about it. I refuse to give up my right to critically think and my democratic right to express an opinion. Bill C-4, otherwise known as the Conversion Therapy Ban, was passed by Canadian Parliament in December 2021 in an unprecedented unanimous vote. The House all at once pushed this piece of legislation through at lightning speed. Interestingly enough, this expedited process violated the government's own rules. The release of a formal report prior to the vote, highlighting the potential charter violations. Parliamentarians knowingly skipped due process. This is an outright fail of our democracy. 
I'm fully aware this topic is a political hot potato. That doesn't mean it shouldn't have been dealt with properly. The democratic process of discussion, debate, and amendments are in place for a reason. You can read the wording of Bill C-4 for yourself online. Anyone who uses harmful therapy should be brought to justice, no question. But this bill doesn't accomplish that. To look at any public policy objectively, it's important we get an understanding of the terminology. What is conversion therapy exactly? Vancouver's Peter Guidich recounts his experiences in a 2017 memoir titled The Inheritance of Shame. Over a period of six years, I was with this doctor. Uh, at first, they started simply with talk therapy, uh, psychotherapy, uh, very quickly moving into what he practiced, primal screen therapy. Uh, he started to prescribe psychiatric medication very early on, saying that we would need to silence the noise of my homosexuality. And so these psychiatric medications uh, were prescribed in, in combination, multiple different types of, of medications, uh, sedative, several antidepressants, um, eventually an antipsychotic because I went psychotic with this, these combined drugs and escalating dosages, um, and other experimental therapies, uh, injections of ketamine hydrochloride with reparenting sessions, and um, and even other things that are all documented in my book, but I, frankly, they're so gruesome sometimes, I, I just don't want to get into the details. Of this is a very loose term, quote, conversion therapy. There, this is not therapy in my mind. We have scores and scores and decades of people who have been through these treatments, who come out traumatized, or who end up killing themselves. We know this by now. Every leading health organization in the world has denounced these treatments. We don't need evidence to say that they are horrifying, traumatic, and cause damage. I certainly empathize with the terrible experiences some individuals have had at the hands of malicious practitioners and authority figures. A group called No Conversion Canada states, and I quote, 10% of gay, bi, trans, and queer men, and two-spirit and non-binary Canadians have experienced conversion practices, most of which occurred or started before the age of 20. The statement on their website doesn't include any information on what years these experiences took place. According to the American Psychiatric Association, conversion therapy has been rejected for decades and is professionally condemned. I quote, Since 1998, the American Psychiatric Association has opposed any psychiatric treatment such as reparative or conversion therapy, which is based upon the assumption that homosexuality per se is a mental disorder or that a patient should change his or her homosexual orientation. Conversion therapy is opposed by more than 50 professional associations worldwide, including Canadian Psychology Association, Canadian Association of Social Workers, the World Health Organization, the UN, Amnesty International, and many others. Everyone agrees, harmful practices must stop. 
Does Bill C4 accomplish that goal? I was 21 years old when I entered into my first homosexual relationship. My mom's first reaction was, she said, Vilna, I'm going to send you to a psychiatrist. Now, I willingly went. And when I got there, uh, they put me on a hospital bed and they tied my hands and my feet to the bed with, with straps and they injected me with a substance which put me into some kind of a hypnosis. And then he started to pound me with questions and and uh, very harsh comments. So that uh, experience uh, damaged me for decades to come. I'm against it and we should all be against those type of things. So decades after the negative experience, my pastor and his wife, they invited me into their home. I was able to visit them every week and bring what was on my heart. And they wouldn't try to fix me. They wouldn't even try to pray for me. They allowed me to talk what was on my heart. And that started the process of healing. The bill bans more than what it says it does. And uh, it is it is uh, going to affect especially those people that they say they are protecting uh, with this bill, they, they, I like to call it, they are actually shooting their own soldiers in the foot because uh, many LGBTQ people who truly struggle with this unwanted, unchosen same-sex behavior or, or having gender dysphoria, they do not wish it, they do not want it. And now they are being prevented to receive the help and the support that they're asking for. I remember when I was watching uh, when the, the bill passed and I watched how uh, many of the people that were in the, in the room were hugging each other and cheering each other on. And I'm thinking to myself, you have no idea. Uh, about people like me. There are people like me in Canada who uh, are now being prevented to talk uh, about their heart issues and what's going on and this deep struggle that they have. And I'm thinking to myself, do you have any idea what you just applauded? You know, it was, it was, you know, uh, I personally uh, was shedding some tears when I was watching what just took place in front of my eyes. I couldn't believe it. Bill C-4 goes so far as to criminalize any action that is non-affirming of someone's homosexual orientation or non-cisgender identity, including no-cost verbal conversations or providing a friend with a phone number of a counselor. Jose Ruba, the communications director of Free to Care, says, The bill defines conversion therapy to include merely getting counseling to reduce unwanted non-heterosexual sexual behavior, even if a client doesn't want to change their orientation. This means heterosexual Canadians could get support to reduce their unwanted sexual behavior, but non-heterosexuals could not. It's actually more than cancel culture, it's actually criminal culture, where they're removing um, the right of Canadians 
to live and work and believe as they do, uh, as long as they don't agree with the governments, then now we've empowered the government to take away uh, any kind of democratic levers. We've always had the position that this law actually harms LGBTQ Canadians the most. Uh, no other government in the world, and I've cited 180 definitions of conversion therapy by provincial, uh, municipal, state, and federal governments, from Israel to uh, cities in Iowa, right, as well as LGBTQ groups definitions, and all the medical and professional associations in Canada and the U.S. that define conversion therapy, even the United Nations, none of them define conversion therapy in this broad way. We're simply some, helping someone reduce unwanted non-heterosexual behavior or non-cisgender behavior is now criminal. You can now go to jail if you offer that counseling. Just think about that if you're a parent. Is that really what you want for Canadian law to encourage? And, and by the way, the law is very clear. You cannot favor one gender identity or another when you're helping your child, when you're counseling your child. How is that even possible? Right? How, how can you not favor and encourage your child to at least explore what it means to be their biological sex? When I look at this bill, the first strike against it is the bundling up gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction as being two fruits of the same tree. When you dig a little deeper, you can see it is literally like comparing apples and oranges, a discussion that deserves thoughtful, nuanced analysis. There's no conversion therapy. I, I don't even know what that word is. I, that word gets tossed around. I went to a psychotherapist and it was simple talk therapy. The therapy was only to allow me the opportunity to discover what the comorbid disorders are. Therapy is only a tool to uncover the comorbid disorders that are causing people to think that they're transgender. And some of those are body dysmorphia, autogynephilia, bipolar disorder, dissociative disorders, and other disorders. So it's not conversion therapy at all. That word is badly misused. It's inaccurate. In fact, it's quite false. When I was four years old, after she had made me a purple chiffon dress, because she enjoyed dressing me up, and so um, that whole thing planted the seed of what today we identify as gender dysphoria. So she planted the seed and encouraged and was delighted in how cute I looked as a little girl. And I liked being affirmed. And so I really enjoyed cross-dressing because of the affirmation. The surgery doesn't solve anything. Hormones don't solve anything because uh, the purple dress uh, is only an indication that there was something confusing in my original thought of who I was. And then I went to the therapists who are gender specialists who told me that I needed hormone therapy and gender reassignment surgery. And that's why I underwent surgery at age 42, but it didn't fix anything. That wasn't the solution. It was actually what I needed was psychotherapy, which I underwent for several years after undergoing reassignment surgery and realized that I never really needed the hormones or the surgery and uncovered the issues that caused me to think that I was transgender and being affirmed and guided, supported and encouraged toward transgender identities leads people to regret. Author and journalist Abigail Schreier chronicles her research in a 2021 presentation at Hillsdale College. The argument that's made is that these kids can't wait. The suicide rates of, for the trans-identified youth and trans 
adults are very high, the argument goes. And so we need to get in there and start fixing them as soon and dramatically as possible. But unfortunately, there are no long-term studies that indicate that puberty blockers cure suicidality or even that they produce better mental health outcomes. The claim that puberty blockers are safe and reversible for this population is not well-founded. And the claim that it's a neutral intervention, just a pause button, they say, without serious downsides, is simply false. Teenage girls are now the leading demographic of those claiming to have gender dysphoria. What's going on? The answer is social contagion. One more instance of teen girls sharing and spreading their pain. And now they're being allowed to self-diagnose with gender dysphoria by a medical establishment that's decided its job is merely to affirm and agree with these girls. A medical establishment that has, with regard to trans-identified adolescents, effectively turned its doctors into life coaches. Since my book, Irreversible Damage, was published in June of 2020, more evidence than I ever could have imagined has come out indicating that this thesis is correct. You may not know the name Kira Bell. This is a young woman in the UK, very troubled in adolescence, who was rushed to transition in her teen years and came to regret it. She underwent double mastectomy and spent years on testosterone, only to realize that her problem had never been gender. She sued the National Gender Clinic in England, and back in December, the High Court of Justice examined her case and the claim of similarly situated plaintiffs, and she won. The court examined the medical protocols applied to her, protocols identical to the ones we have in America, and the High Court of Justice was horrified. It was absolutely appalled that a young girl had been allowed to consent to eliminating her future fertility and sexual function at an age when she could not have possibly gauged that loss. She had begun transitioning at 15. If you didn't read about the landmark Kirabel case in the American legacy media, well, that's because they decided to pretend it didn't happen. Just as they continued to ignore or dismiss the stories of the thousands of detransitioners, these are young women who underwent medical transition and later regretted it and attempt to reverse course. Wow, that is a lot to wrap one's head around. But yes, this is unfortunately a very real problem. Doctors are held hostage against an ideological agenda. Medical practice becomes politicized and patients, especially children and teens, suffer. The second strike against this bill is there are already laws in the Canadian Criminal Code that list torture, abuse, and hate speech as very serious offenses. These laws would apply to anyone who mistreats an individual, including physicians, therapists, and clergy of all religions. So if Canadian Criminal Code wasn't strong enough to stop harms, what exactly about Bill C-4 will revolutionize that? Unfortunately, Bill C-4 does not contain the words torture, force, or coercion. It merely implies that anything outside of affirmation is de facto hate and bigotry. 
Additionally, formal bans on conversion therapy have popped up in jurisdictions across Canada since 2015. Research indicates these bans have resulted in zero criminal charges. So why is a federal ban on conversion therapy necessary? And if it is, will it be effective to stop everything harmful? I doubt it. And in some cases, it might actually cause harm with its chilling effect. Bill C-4 was not clearly written to rescue the people it claimed to at all. The third and biggest strike against C-4 is that it hurts children, minors who cannot make these life-altering decisions on their own. These are well-documented, scientifically published findings. It's conceivable that thousands of children will take pharmaceutical interventions to block hormones because the hands of the parents, doctors, therapists, and psychologists were tied. I'll let that sink in for a second. Kids are harmed by this ideology and sweeping policy, but no one wants to hear that part. The ideology behind these types of activist policies paint every home as being one that is hateful and dangerous for kids who question their identity or orientation. This sentiment is, of course, not true. If any child is suffering true abuse and hate at the hands of an adult or peer, I truly believe someone should intervene. But to assume affirmation is the only way to help a child is absurd. At best, Bill C-4 is false advertising. At worst, it prevents access to compassionate and honoring conversations with a counselor that a consenting adult or parents actually want to participate in. All common-sense people should be appalled that Canada has taken the most extreme stance worldwide on banning counseling. Big government knows that most people won't do the homework they're hoping you believe that through this bill alone, they are an ally to the LGBTQ2 community. Unfortunately, that in and of itself is only political theater. Bill C-4 is likely not effective at stopping all harms, and it creates a massive chill factor and impedes fellow Canadians, including parents and children, from getting genuine help they desire. It criminalizes all worldviews that don't line up with this particular social activism ideology. Well, the government does have not only the right, but the responsibility to step in if any particular practice is doing verifiable damage to people. Uh, so, for example, if in the name of their religion, a particular group abuses children, say they believe that children should be disciplined, and so their way of practicing discipline is to beat the children until they bleed. Does the government have the right to step in and violate their quote-unquote religious freedom? Absolutely it does, and it should. But the burden of proof is on the people who are accusing the practitioner of damage. If it can be proven that simply counseling or mentoring someone who is in conflict because of their sexual desires is inherently damaging, then of course the government should step in. 
I mean, virtually the only way to prove that a form of therapy is damaging is to test someone psychologically before they begin the therapy, then monitor the therapy itself, and then test them after the therapy to see what kind of an impact it's had on them. I think that it is a social inconvenience to the LGBTQ political movement to have any voices out there at all that challenge the idea that homosexuality is normal. Even though those voices are pretty much limited to the Christian community or to the conservative Jewish community or Mormon community or Muslim community, still the fact that those voices exist is a political inconvenience and I believe that the goal of the movement is to silence all opposition. Now I don't think that's the goal of all lesbian and gay people. I think it's the goal of the politicized LGBTQ movement and those are two different things. The affirmation only narrative is designed to shut down all opposition to it. Otherwise known as a thought terminating cliche, activists will blurt out a reductive, plausible sounding phrase that is the start and the end of any analysis. At the risk of repeating myself, I want to clearly state that I respect all people, regardless of gender, sexual orientation, or any other identification. Part of this respect is me acknowledging their right to think and act based on their own conscience, meaning the adult individual or the parent or guardian. If anyone wants to seek any type of counseling, therapy, or treatment, they should be free to do so and to freely stop when they wish to. Canadians should be free to respectfully speak to one another without the threat of the police investigating. Parental rights should be acknowledged and respected. No child should be burdened by the consequences of decisions they're not mature enough to make. Parents and children are also unfortunately the victims of the next bill that I'll be profiling. Bill 67, an act to amend various acts with respect to racial equity, is an Ontario provincial bill that is currently approaching its third reading. And while it is only being discussed in this province for now, keep your eyes peeled. Things like this tend to ripple across the country without so much as a hint of public input. Alleged enhancements that serve a social justice agenda and do nothing to improve the lives of students. You can read the wording for Bill 67 for yourself online. Anti-racism and racial equity sound so great. But equity is not the same as equality. What is loaded behind these terms? Words can be weaponized. Trendy phrases can be a Trojan horse. Every decent human being wants to support the eradication of racism. But that isn't actually the substance of this bill at all. Columnist Barbara Kay elaborates. It is billed as uh, an anti-racism bill. It's going to give anti-racist instruction to children in the ed educational system. Uh, but the bill is, in fact, um, pretty well a clone of the programs in the United States that are being resisted uh, all over the place uh, because it depends entirely on critical race theory for the ideas that are in the uh, program and uh, for the 
the uh, the rules that are going to govern it. It deals in framing all questions of victimhood in terms of identity groups. It uh, says that it's going to oppose anti-Indigenous racism, anti-Black racism, and anti-Asian racism, plus anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. But in fact, they do not include anti-Caucasian racism because that is going to be the one racism that is not only going to be allowed, but uh, encouraged, according to critical race theory. I'm morally certain a lot of the intense discussion and a lot of the blame, blame laying uh, is going to focus more on indigenous matters uh, because that uh, the the indigenous uh, settler history is not the equivalent in fact, but it is the equivalent in terms of the moral narrative uh, in Canada as slavery was in the United States. So I have the idea that that uh, it's going to be not just white, but settler privilege that's going to be emphasized. In other words, what was racist 50 years ago or 20 years ago uh, would be a racist action. Now they've moved the goalposts so that it's, well, it's unconscious. Yeah, you're not seeing, oh, it doesn't matter if you don't see the racism. Then there's these microaggressions and there's what's in your mind. It used to be an action. You used to have to behave in a racist way. Now, they're telling you what's in your mind. I thought, whoa, whoa, parents will never accept this. Uh, and a few parents didn't. But on the whole, um, they, as you say, people don't want to be shunned. They don't want to be isolated. And they're afraid to stick their heads over the parapet, especially Canadians. Uh, we don't have a tradition of it. And I fear that this, this fascination with niceness uh, will be the death of us culturally. Bill 67 shames students for events that took place a century ago. It discriminates against excellent qualified teachers who don't fit the mold of CRT curriculum or who don't check enough diversity boxes on a form. Bill 67 is so dangerous and volatile, it literally teaches kids how to hate one another and how to identify as victims forever. It cripples the public education system. It seeks to indoctrinate whole generations of kids to be social justice robots who have not been adequately trained with the basics of math, science, or language. How well will society thrive then? John McWhorter teaches linguistics, philosophy, and music history at Columbia University in New York City. In his latest book, Woke Racism, he offers a stunning illustration of how critical race theory, CRT, hurts students. His term for the elites in government making this type of legislation is the elect. We can see it in the training seminars now required by many companies in which things like logic and punctuality are ascribed to whiteness. Do the people running these seminars really believe that black people can't be rational and on time? Do they think that science and math are things that only white kids are good at? If black students perform poorly on standardized tests, is it fair to assume that the test is racist and should therefore be discontinued as the elect now propose? Would it not be better to ensure that those students have access to resources and tutoring. 
Far from helping anyone, these distortions of essence and aptitude actually hurt the advancement of what is now commonly referred to as racial equity. Wow. Why would we want to further instill the idea in our kids' heads that people are the sum of their skin color or their circumstances at birth? That is the absolute opposite of the Canadian dream. Bruce Party, a Queen's University law professor and executive director for Rights Probe, explains the circular logic of CRT this way. The real trap is to try and work this out in a way that's rational, in a way that assumes it's rational and consistent. Those are two of the things that have been rejected by CRT, even the postmodern idea that all truth is subjective is not carried through. What they basically say is, there is no truth except our truth, which you will comply with under penalty, and that's what this bill is doing. Why would those leading our education sector want to push this agenda? What do the elites have to gain? As G. Michael Hoff in his novel put it, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. And so the cycle of history repeats itself over and over. Weak men seeking power look for problems to exploit. Canadians have long been able to trust in our institutions like government, law enforcement, and public education. The concept that these systems are compromised to this degree is very hard to swallow. It's far easier to only focus on the feel-good part of the narrative and hope someone will eventually right the wrongs. Member of Provincial Parliament Belinda Carhalios was the only MPP to vote no when Bill 67 had its second reading in the Ontario legislature. I did my homework and read this bill, which, which says things like, you know, um, you can find parents and children for being subconsciously racist. It doesn't define what subconscious racism is. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's not a good bill. It, it, it doesn't stop racism. It actually is going to perpetuate the issue it, it, try, it says it's trying to solve. Um, and I, I voted against it and I stand by it. And as much as, you know, it was awkward for a second, that's my job, right? That's what I get paid to do. Um, and I think, I believe it was the right way to vote in this, in this case. What it does is it's forcing the hiring of, of left-wing woke consultants who basically run around calling everyone a racist if you have a different opinion to them. If someone is, is truly a racist uh, and believes that one race is superior to another, absolutely that is wrong. Uh, and that should be challenged, that should be condemned. That is not acceptable in any way, shape, or form. I'm a woman. I'm a mixed ethnicity. My father comes from Trinidad. My mother is from Portugal. I'm a first-generation Canadian. Um, my parents dealt with a lot of challenges. My mother couldn't speak English. Uh, my father had a really thick accent. Um, and so yeah, this is something that, you know, people like to, to paint uh, me with, like, privilege and things like that. This isn't privilege. My parents worked darn hard for everything that we have. And um, it's, it's a shame that the NDP uh, are putting through bills like this, supported by the PC government and other independent MPPs, um, to, to claim 
try to fix racism in schools when really, in fact, this bill will do none of that. There is so much power in your voice. And it's, and it's, it's the fact that, you know, individuals are now calling their MPPs, they're emailing their MPPs, they're making, a, they're, they're, they're making touch points with their MPPs and other elected representatives. Um, and they're doing it more than once. And they're asking for follow-up because after a while, you know, sometimes they feel like they're being ignored, but I always tell them, you got to be in this for the long game because a lot of politicians know that if I don't respond to you, then you might go away. And so I, I encourage them. I said, you can make a difference. Bill 67 has not been passed into law yet. There is still time to influence MPPs and other leaders in Ontario to inform them of the harmful effects that this bill will produce. Parents and all concerned Canadians must raise awareness on this issue. Call or write your elected official, sign online petitions, and tell people what you've learned. If you'd like an example of this kind of letter to send to your elected official, request today's reference material. Visit our website to sign up. You might also be interested in diving further into what CRT is. Check out a previous episode from this season entitled, How CRT Could Destroy Canada. Available on returntoreason.tv without paywalls or logins. If you think CRT is only taking root in the education system, think again. Diplomats are forced to take race-based sensitivity training, and the feds released an internal training document called Building a Foundation of Change, Canada's Anti-Racism Strategy, to the tune of $45 million. Tax dollars fill the coffers that pay for these programs. And just this month, a Calgary, Alberta Home Depot made this material available in their staff rooms, asking employees to evaluate their own privilege. One line from the pamphlet reads, If you're confident the police exist to protect you, you have white privilege. Bad policy that is rushed through with little to no public input is most often on wedge issues where the goal is to vilify the opposing parties. The two bills I've mentioned so far are not standalone instances where people are actually hurt by the legislation rather than helped. For instance, did you know that bills and tax-funded projects around the opiate crisis have rarely worked in Canada at reducing the number of overdose deaths, if at all? Everything under the harm reduction umbrella enables people to continue with a life of substance abuse and doesn't equip them properly to enter rehab or learn life skills to become healthy, contributing members of society. The Canadian feds have also been pondering the idea of decriminalizing most street drugs. This method has been used in Portugal since 2001 and boasts some success, but people are still dying of substance abuse. Will it work in Canada? Look no further than a very recent hearing of the Commons Health Committee from Minister Dr. Carolyn Bennett. Legalization of marijuana did not stop users from buying on the black market. As in the journey with cannabis, decriminalization of heroin and other substances still means people go to the street to get their drugs, and they are still dying. I am focused on getting safer supplies to the people using drugs. 
Community-based charities see the most success in actually rehabilitating people who struggle with substance abuse. A large percentage of Canadians who struggle with addictions and homelessness have also been diagnosed with or suspected to have a mental illness, but do not get professional help for it. Startling statistics indicate a big government safety net system is not solving this complex challenge in our society. Why would the government meddle in an area for which it is not best suited to serve? Why not simply empower those on the ground to do their work? As a good friend of mine would say, who is serving whom? David Lease of Frontier Center for Public Policy says, so many decisions are based solely on short-term political thinking to appease special interest groups, despite the evidence and evaluation that the policies aren't effective. This is why we continue to see astronomical rise in the cost of living, homelessness, and addictions increasing, growing health care wait lists, and poor performing schools. My final example for today's show is Canada's federal bill C-11, titled Online Streaming Act, formerly Bill C-10 which seeks to expand the power of the CRTC to regulate user-generated content. Yes, an average teenager uploading to TikTok could be called a program, subject to review, fees, and judged for how much it aligns with the government's goals. Essentially, it's government overreach and a political pretzel of exemptions all wrapped up into one piece of bad legislation. If passed, the harm will take years to fully realize. Michael Geist, one of the most prominent Canadian voices on this subject, summarizes it in a February 2022 article. There was an opportunity to use the reintroduction of the bill to fully exclude user-generated content. No other country in the world regulates content this way. Limit the scope of the bill to a manageable size and create more certainty. Instead, the government has envisioned the entire globe as subject to Canadian broadcast jurisdiction, increased the power of the regulator, and done little to answer many of the previously unanswered questions. Who exactly is being helped by this public policy? That is much harder to pin down than the obvious list of individuals and businesses that would be harmed. The original motivation for this bill was advertised as preserving Canadian heritage and increasing Canadian content, but critics say this bill would have been designed much differently if that were the only intention behind it. It appears to be a case of camouflaging a policy with trendy headlines and hoping the public doesn't dig deeper. Unfortunately, there are many public policies that do not fix the problems they claim to and end up hurting citizens in the long run. No surprise that politicians do not want to go through the process of evaluation because it very likely will be telling and not in a flattering way. Thomas Sowell, one of the greatest thinkers of our time and a true voice for reason, put it this way. 
No one will really understand politics until they understand that politicians are not trying to solve our problems. They are trying to solve their own problems, of which getting elected and re-elected are number one and number two. Whatever is number three is far behind. Isn't high time we demand some honesty and accountability from our elected officials? Not all public policies help. Some hurt. Let's address that, amend what we need to, and keep trying to find innovative solutions to society's challenges. Any fool can make a problem sound complicated and impossible to solve, but it takes a wise leader to work simple truths and offer real solutions. I want all children and adults to have safe access to the services they want and need. I want all parents to be aware of what CRT really is, how it is being taught in schools, and bravely speak up at school council meetings to voice their support for a curriculum that focuses on academics instead of social justice. I want all citizens, regardless of circumstances, to have a fighting chance to get off the streets and win over substance abuse and whatever other challenges they face. I want freedom of speech and freedom of expression to flourish in Canada once again. I want all Canadians to have the right to think and act for themselves. I don't want the government dictating what is and is not acceptable views or life choices. I want leaders in this country to take a good look in the mirror and do their research before they vote on any legislation that may negatively affect the very people they claim to represent. The first step is awareness. It's unfortunate that this is such a huge disconnect between lawmakers and citizens. As I pointed out today, legislation is often cloaked under a social justice movement that is sure to strike an emotion with the majority but merely sugarcoats what is buried deep within that law itself. If you ever get the sense you aren't woke enough for the modern society, you aren't alone. There are tons of concerned Canadians who are just like you. We deeply care about people this country, and creating a great future for the generations to come. Do not let sloppy legislation discourage you from influencing people for good and exercising your democratic right. We should always begin with respect and peace in whatever action we take. Lastly, I want to challenge you to share this episode with a friend today. Don't be shy. Never underestimate the power of information. If we don't share information at a grassroots level, who will? We know most in government simply want to score points on the next opinion poll with great sounding bills. Remind those in public office that if they really want to outshine the competition, they should honor the intelligence of their constituents. Let's all return to reason. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv. There, you can also find out more about Leon, his books, and his other media series. 
You can help us grow this podcast by rating, reviewing, sharing this episode with a friend, or subscribing. Still want more? Follow Leon Fontaine on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have a suggestion for the show or would like the reference material for this episode, use the link in the show notes.